being an English language learner does not make them solely an English learner. They are also of a specific ethnicity. They are also of a specific religion, of a specific class or socioeconomic status. It's all inclusive and people of all walks of life can be ELs. So it's really important for us to talk about it explicitly and purposely and consciously rather than just assuming that everyone knows. It's like saying that someone who is of color understands racism without diving into it more. There are people from all walks of life who understand things differently and we need to have explicit conversations around it. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What is implicit bias and what does it mean for teachers of multilingual students? How can educators take steps to recognize their own implicit biases so they can better serve their students? How can weaving cultural responsiveness into curriculum and pedagogy create more opportunities for communication, collaboration, and learning? We discuss these questions and much more with Megan Fucciarelli. Megan is a retired superintendent of schools with over 20 years of experience in the social justice realm. Now residing in Michigan, Megan has spent the bulk of her career in the Chicago area. As executive director and principal consultant of Us Squared, She works with a team of like-minded individuals whose primary goal is to help unite society through equity and inclusion work. You can read Megan's full bio in our show notes. Megan Fucciarelli, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I have to say, I have to start by recognizing that we have not uh, done a podcast interview on this topic, which I am kind of ashamed to say, uh, because we've done over 100. I think we've probably alluded to it. Um, I wonder if that is an implicit bias uh, that I carry as the producer um, and host of the podcast, um, because I think, well, we, we addressed issues of multiculturalism and diversity. Um, so that that might be something that we get into today. But that being said... Could you start by giving listeners um, a summary of what implicit bias is and why it is so important in the context of education and particularly when educating diverse groups of students? Yeah. And Steve, it's interesting that you say that because the first thing I'd like to say is that that's not uncommon. Um, A lot of times people will say, well, we talk about inclusion or we talk about making sure people feel welcome at the table, but without the explicit conversation around what implicit bias is, that's where we get into some of the difficulties. So well, here it is. Bias, We're doing yeah, it now. Right? We're doing it now. We've got the awareness. And one of the things we say quite a bit is once we know better, we have to do better. So now that we recognize that it's a gap that we've not done in the podcast series, I'm glad to be here to help. So implicit bias in and of itself is really the whole idea of first thoughts right? We all have first thoughts. We all have those gut instincts. We all have those first impressions of people, of places, of things. We have that because of experiences we've had throughout our life. And educators fall into that same gamut where we have exposure to things from our own childhood that then leak into the classroom. So implicit bias is simply that. It's our first thoughts. And implicit bias in and of itself isn't negative. It's when we turn those first thoughts and treat them like reality without getting to know the people involved. And specifically talking to your population and the group of diverse learners that we're working with, especially within elevations, is the idea that 
our English language learners are extremely diverse in and of themselves. Being an English language learner does not make them solely an English learner. They are also of a specific ethnicity. They are also of a specific religion, of a specific class or socioeconomic status. It's all inclusive and people of all walks of life can be ELs. So it's really important for us to talk about it explicitly and purposely and consciously rather than just assuming that everyone knows. It's like saying that someone who is of color understands racism without diving into it more. There are people from all walks of life who understand things differently and we need to have explicit conversations around it. That's great. And you, I think you really framed that in the context of what our listeners are interested in. And I, I have to allude to a conversation I had with the EL uh, director or ESOL, as they call it down there in Broward County, Vicki Saldella. I just spoke with her um, for our um, In This Together Equity in Action docuseries. And one of the things that she really, and I know her well because I've done some training down there, and she really pushes back, <clears throat> excuse me, and she pushed back on me about categorizing English learners as one group. She said there's a whole wide spectrum, particularly in a county as big as Broward, where they have 30-something, 30,000-something English learners. So I think that's that's really important. So like, you know, it obviously impacts our teaching, right, and, and, and the way that we're working with students. What What is the first thing then that teachers sort of can do to kind of, especially teachers who are not teacher, EL teachers, they're content teachers who happen to have English learners in their classrooms. What do they need to do to make sure that they're not categorizing them sort of as one group? What's like one step they can take? The very first step is just educating ourselves about intersectionality. And let me define that term for you. So intersectionality is the idea that multiple pieces define who we are. So I identify as being white. I also identify as being a woman. I also identify as being Christian. I also identify as being a mother, but none of those categories solely define me. So it's important for teachers to recognize that being an EL does not solely define that child or that student. And the easiest way to do that is self-reflection. And that's the idea that I just started by saying what groups I belong to. I didn't start by defining who you are, Steve, right? Too often in education, we define something by putting it on someone else or defining someone else rather than starting with ourselves. And that's really the whole foundation of the work that I do within my company and everything else is we have to start with ourselves. So if teachers can start to do some of that self-reflection of what identity groups they belong to and how much they appreciate when people see them as a whole person rather than just one category. No one wants to be singled out as one thing. No one wants that. I've never met anyone who said, yes, only see me as a white person. Don't think about my gender. Don't think about my religion. Don't think about my family status. Only see me as white, right? Or only see me as an English speaker. No one wants to be categorized in that way. So it's important to remember that. And it's important to start with ourselves and have teachers do some self-reflection activities of what groups do they belong to? What groups give them privilege in society and what groups might they be oppressed for in society? Because ELs, especially today in America, ELs are being marginalized at a whole new level than they ever have been. And teachers fall victim to that because we're all human. So it depends. When you go home at night, are you watching CNBC or are you watching Fox News? 
because you're getting a different impression of what's going on and you're bringing that into your classroom, whether consciously or not, you're bringing that into your classroom. Yeah. I love the idea of starting with yourself. And I was just thinking as you were talking there that, you know, I was a high school teacher for 17 years and I can't recall a situation where somebody in a professional development opportunity, wherever the case may, may be, asked me to start with myself. Um, and it almost seems in some ways like, is that the, like, if, if I'm thinking about that without you having explained it to me, I'm thinking, is that the right place to start? What about empathy? What about me understanding someone else? But I feel like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so feel free to push back here. You're sort of creating that empathy by understanding who you are and other, how other people look at you so that then you can say, oh, this is how I need to approach um, another person. And this also gets into the like equity versus equality piece. You know, there's all those like illustrations that people use the baseball park and all that stuff of how people can see the game. And I was guilty for years of being a teacher of trade. I'm treating everybody equally. That's like what I'm going to do. Um, but then you get into the idea of equity and how that's different and it becomes kind of a dangerous tightrope to walk. Um, so there's a connection there between, I think between seeing who you are, understanding who you are as a person, gaining that empathy, and then really getting into that equality versus equity piece. What, what would you say to that? Was I right there or am I, am I off? Yeah, you're a hundred percent on board. And I think there's two pieces. First of all, to build a sense of empathy, you have to have a solid foundation of who you are, right? You have to understand where you're coming from before you can build true empathy for anyone else. Sympathy is what you have when you focus solely on the other person. When you feel sorry for them and you focus solely on them, that's sympathy. To build empathy, you have to allow yourself to reach in and really connect to that person. And the only way you can connect to anyone else is if you take care of yourself first. It's the whole idea of the oxygen mask and everything else. You can't help anyone else until you connect and take care of yourself first. So that self-reflection is crucial. And then you spoke about the equity versus equality. We hear that all the time of, I treat everyone the same. My CS is all equal. That's actually one of the biggest issues that we have in society today, especially in education. We can't treat everyone the same. We know this through having IEPs, through having 504 plans, through having special services, whether it's for students who are struggling or students who are gifted. If we gave everyone the same materials and the same resources, they would not all be the same level of successful. Especially so now. It's not, exactly. And it's not about providing the same things to everyone. It's about making sure that everyone has access to the same level of opportunity and achievement. So equity is really what we want to get to. And equity is providing the same level of resource or the level of resources that are necessary for that particular student to reach the same level of success across the board. If you're trying to get equitable, then you have to provide access to equal opportunity at the end of the road. It's not about what you provide in that path along the way. And it's interesting that you brought up the baseball image, right? We actually created another image that's in addition to that, where we take down that wood privacy fence. And we either put up a chain, a chain link fence that people can see through and there's no need to have a crate at all, or you take down the fence, right? That's what true inclusion and equity is. It's where you get to a point in your system that you don't have to have these extra barriers or these extra supports available for people. You're allowing your system to be accessible to everyone. 
And I suppose then it comes a little easier. It's kind of part of the plan. You sort of develop some, I don't know if I'd call it muscle memory, but some, some sort of strategies to make it happen. It's part of your culture. Um, and those barriers are, are taken down. But it seems like the first step to doing any of this is, as you said, kind of looking at yourself and reflecting, but also understanding that you and everyone has these implicit biases, which can be challenging, like looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, I'm not perfect. Not only am I not perfect, but I have some kind of skeletons in my closet that I need to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what advice would you give to help like individual educators or school teams? Because I think that there's a lot of educators who just are not getting this training. We'll talk about that later. Um, how, how do they take that first step? How, I mean, how do you do that to recognize it? Do you do that alone individually? Do you do it with a group of people? How do you do it so it sticks and so that you can take the next step? Yeah, I think there's a couple different steps with that. So one of the things we have seven principles that we kind of abide by. And one of those is that guilt and politeness are the glue that holds prejudice and stigma in place. Say that again, please. Guilt and politeness are the glue that hold prejudice and stigma in place. And what we mean by that is that if we continue to hold shame or guilt for things that our identity groups have historically done or ways that we feel like we feel bad about the implicit bias we hold, we'll never move through that. We can't hold shame. We can't hold guilt for that. And if we continue to be so polite that we don't allow ourselves to have those difficult conversations because we're afraid someone might view us as bad people, then we're going to perpetuate that stigma. So we have to move past that. So the very first thing I tell everyone who wants to do this work is to do your very best to let go of the shame. And shame is normal and natural and it happens, right? Shame is inherent in all of us. It's a very human emotion. But the number one step in doing this work is to let go of that shame. Because if you're doing this work and allowing yourself to self-reflect, then you have to give yourself some credit for doing that hard work because it is difficult to see, like you said, the skeletons in our closet. And then to humanize the idea that we all have this. I've been doing the work for over 20 years and I still have biases that run through my head on a regular basis. It's all rooted in where we were raised, how we were raised, who we were socialized with, what part of the world we were exposed to at what age, right? That's all human and natural. But the other thing to share with that and another way to get rid of some of the guilt and shame is to recognize that our first thoughts or our implicit biases don't necessarily correlate with our core beliefs. My core beliefs are very altruistic, very inclusive, very equitable across the board, because that's what I have groomed myself to believe through research, through analysis, through professional development, through my own development. But my implicit biases are still there because I had 20 years, my first 20 years of life were in a very homogenous environment with no diversity, racially, culturally, religious, socioeconomic, there was no diversity. So my first 20 years were rooted in that. But my core beliefs now are different. So we can get rid of that shame and that guilt if we recognize that our implicit bias don't necessarily have to match with our core beliefs. Do they ever go away, the implicit biases? Like you just said, I mean, it's really interesting because you said 20 years, you know, you've had this experience, you still have them, but mm-hmm. you have, um, you know, you, you recognize that they're there and that's how you live your life according to your values and your ideals. But are they ever going to go away or are they always going to be there for everyone? 
Implicit biases are malleable. I'm not going to say that they never go away. They do adjust. They are malleable, right? Based on your experiences. However, some level of them will always be there because that's how we form our foundation, right? Whatever your first language is, your implicit bias is similar to your first language. Think about it, especially with elevation. Think about all of your students who have multiple languages or your staff members who have multiple languages. I know I'm bilingual myself. I also speak Spanish. I know that even when I'm in a Spanish-speaking country and I'm speaking Spanish, my first thoughts are typically in English. I can relate. (laughs) And when I come home from a Spanish-speaking country, I worked in an orphanage for a long time in the Dominican Republic. And I know when I would come home after spending two or three months in the Dominican, I would come back to the States and my first thoughts for at least a week or two were in Spanish because I was so embedded in it. It doesn't mean that it's wrong or right. It's just how we shift our experiences. So that's the easiest way to put it, especially for this audience, is your first language is what you revert to. Your first bias, your implicit bias, is what you revert to. Now, it can shift depending on how much exposure you have to other groups, but it's still going to be what you revert to. But once you recognize what those are, then the work comes in of where did that come from and recognizing where it came from. I can tell you why I think certain things. I can go back to moments. Well, my grandmother used to tell me that over and over. My first exposure to a person of color in person, I was 16 years old. Hmm. I can tell you the very first exposure I had to someone in that, in that range, in that group. That roots a lot of my background. The stories I was told when I was younger, that gives me my implicit first thoughts. But my core beliefs shift how I treat people and how I maneuver. And I think people who do that hard work, because we all have them, whether it's towards a certain gender, a certain sex, a certain religion, we all have them. Now, we all don't have the same ones because of where we were raised. And it's not always against groups. It's not always towards groups that are not our own. There are people like I have implicit bias towards women and I identify as a woman. But because of the environment I was raised in, I was told that women stayed home and took care of the home. So my first thought often goes to that, even though I am the exact opposite of that. I love keeping a nice home, but I am very driven and I'm constantly out there and doing my thing. But my first thought because of experiences I was raised with. So it's not always about groups that we don't identify with. It can be with our own group as well. Right. Yeah. There's a few things that you said. There's a lot of things that you just said that I think are really important, but I love the language comparison because as as you said, I think our audience will relate to that. I certainly do as being, boy, I don't even know if I'm still bilingual anymore. I haven't used my Spanish in quite a long time. And I say that as somebody who taught Spanish for 17 years. So that's another story. Um, But I totally understand that. And then like what I'm thinking as you're speaking there is what a relief it must be when you get to that point where you can say, I have this, it's okay. Uh, here are some ways that I can, that I can deal with it. Um, And so that's kind of my next question. Like once you've recognized it, that it's there and that everybody has it and you've kind of let go of that shame um, and the politeness is another piece as well, where it's like, that's my, I think my problem is like, you know, I don't want to ruffle any feathers and and get involved in a situation where I seem like a bad person or whatever the case may be. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole now, but that's just an example. Um, Once we recognize all that and sort of let go of it, 
what's the next step to, in terms of making sure that we're, um, you know, working the best we can with students and families? Yeah. The next step after you recognize it is to bring others into your work with you. So if you have a cadre of other teachers who are working alongside you, or if you have a partner teacher or a co-teacher, ask them to do the same journey alongside you. And both of you do your own self-reflection work and then call in each other as accountability partners and say, when you notice something, can you identify that for me? And you have to give permission for that. And one of the experiences that we do in one of the trainings is we ask people, we say, I love making mistakes and I encourage you to make mistakes about me and my people, right? I'm okay with you making mistakes about me as a people because that's the only way we're going to learn. And that's the only way we're going to get past the politeness. If we don't get past that politeness, we're not going to get to that stigma. We're not going to get to the root of the issue. We're going to continue to brush things under the rug. So if you call in an accountability partner to say, hey, Steve, did you notice what you just did? Or can I bring attention to something that you just did? Because a lot of times we don't even recognize what we're doing because we're doing it out of good intentions. We're saying things, we're giving compliments to students. Wow, you speak so well. That's a microaggression in and of itself. We think it's a compliment, right? But what is really that saying is, I don't expect you to speak well for an immigrant, or I don't expect you to speak well for an English learner. Right. Yeah. You can't do that on your own. You just can't because you're never going to recognize them. That's, I was just going to mention microaggressions. I mean, how are you ever going to, to stop doing that unless you say to someone, I need you to help me with this and I can help you as well. So I'm glad you brought that up. And after you bring in accountability partners with staff, it's important to have that conversation with your students as well, because your students are willing to help you. Yeah. And then you can have that conversation to help students recognize their own microaggressions. Because depending on whether you're doing a, an inclusion classroom or whether you're doing pullout or whether you're doing self-contained, you have microaggressions between peers just as much as you have microaggressions between faculty and students. Right. And then it's open. It's out in the open and it's something that's being discussed, which, you know, it's not this thing that's swept under the rug, which I feel like is the case in, in many places. So I, I just kind of mentioned it in a way, the perspective that I just took is if you're a teacher, maybe you listen to this podcast or you heard your work somewhere else, or you heard about this and you want to do something about it, but you're not in a position where you're going to, your district is providing you training or something <laughs> like that. You just kind of want to do it on your own. That's one way to do it. Are you seeing, I mean, you're certainly busy in your work, but are you seeing, uh, more of this being involved in sort of high quality professional development for teachers these days? Yeah, we've seen an increase over the last couple of years. I think right now the increase has been much more surrounded around race than around implicit bias generally. However, some state levels, not necessarily schools, but state levels are doing a lot more with implicit bias because of some of the police brutality pieces. And that has really brought up <clears throat> excuse me, an increase in the implicit bias work. School systems right now have been doing a lot with race in general. Um, and then with the implicit bias work, what we do when they call us about doing work around race, we tell them that we can't just put a bandaid on race. We have to look at the foundation of the work, which is the implicit bias, because that encompasses every single identity group that's available out there. Right. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, I think, um, as I said, you know, I, I've been out of the classroom now for, uh, I guess it's five years. Um, but there was never 
you know, we it would be it would be mentioned much like I've done on the podcast. It's kind of been mentioned and sprinkled in here and there, but there's there is not a deliberate, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of course of action, which I think is what we we need to be doing. Um, you know, the other thing that we there's been really there's been a spotlight on the importance of building relationships with students and families. Um, I'm seeing this in the people that I chat with every day here uh, at Elevation, the administrators, the teachers, um, seeing it in other places as well. Um, and, you know, like a lot of that is that's the first step. Like you can't, teachers are saying there's no way, especially in an online setting or a blended setting or even a face-to-face setting, there's no way that I can get anywhere without establishing and nurturing a strong um, relationship. So it's more important than ever. Um, so how does identifying and overcoming these implicit biases, uh, help us do that, help us main, nurture and maintain relationships? I mean, is it something that you sort of start with? Is it something that you sprinkle in over time? Does it get to a point where it's now too late? I've known this student or this family for too long. How do you go about doing that when wanting yeah, to, a salad, yeah, a salad foundation is based in a trusting relationship, Right. And if you have a trusting relationship, then you're able to have these conversations. And it's interesting because at the very end there, you talked about, is it too late, right? And I think that's actually the point where you come in and say, you know what, I've worked with your family for four years, and I've never really asked you what it's like to be living here in the States, or I've never really asked you what it's like to be an English learner. Do you mind sharing that with me? It's putting ourselves aside and saying, I don't know all the answers as your teacher, and I want to hear from you. What has your experience been? Because building relationships is about sharing experiences, having a communication level that you can be honest with each other and open, and you can have those conversations. So I think it's actually, it's never too late to just come back and say, I've been working with your family for five years, and I've never even asked you what it's like to be here. or what your experience has been like in my school. We do these culture surveys, but how many times do we ever do face-to-face surveys? How many times do we ever ask those questions? And I think that that's really important, especially for our English learning students and their families, because they're in a totally new environment, whether it's they're in a new country, whether it's they're in a new language that they've not been exposed to, whatever it is, They're being exposed to something completely new and someone reaching out and saying, I want to help you. I want to understand where you're coming from, but you have to do that self-work first so that you don't hear that and automatically go towards sympathy. Right. That's what I was going to say. It's a fine line. Like, so, you know, four years can go by and you can, and you can say, Hey, I've never asked you this, but like, then there's the danger of these microaggressions and everything. You know what I mean? So you have to be, you have to have that solid foundation first and understand that before going into that conversation. Right. Yeah. And one of the activities you asked, like, how can we do this? Like, if you're not ready to bring in an ally and you're just wanting to do the work to yourself, I tell people all the time, have a conversation with your dashboard, but now we're not driving anymore, right? We're pretty much staying at home. So have a conversation with your mirror yeah, yeah. in your bathroom while you're brushing your teeth or in the shower while you're washing up. Have a conversation with yourself and be honest with yourself. Give yourself permission to say the ugly truth. Because all of us, if we really dive deep into a bias we hold, it's probably pretty ugly. And it's okay. And I'm not saying to let that out to the world, but I'm saying that we have to at least be honest with ourselves. If we can't be honest with anyone else, we have to start with ourselves. Yeah. You know what I'm thinking about right now? And I don't know if it's if it's right or wrong, but like 
there are people that I I'm try to be good with names. I really try to like remember people's names. And, you know, as a teacher, that's something that you have to do. But oftentimes, you know, there's a name that either just eludes you or it's difficult or whatever the case may be. And so like months go by and you don't ask for the student's name or the person's name because you feel like you feel bad about asking for their name. And then all of a sudden, all this time has gone by and it's incredibly difficult. But then when you finally do say, hey, I I forgot your name, it's always like a sense of relief. But getting yourself to that point is tricky. And I, I feel like it's the same feeling, at least, for having these kinds of conversations that you should have had months ago. Um Am I on the, does that make sense to you? Like as somebody who's an expert in this, because I, I, it's, that's kind of a very small example for something a lot larger. Right. And two things came up with that of the value judgments, right? Like what's right, what's wrong. It's part of that guilt and shame. We have to get rid of that guilt and shame. There is no right. There is no wrong. There are multiple perspectives in every situation, right? So it's getting rid of that guilt and that shame for the name. But then it's also just saying, I really want to get your name right. And I forgot it. Or it's such a new name to me that I'm struggling. If we can be honest and vulnerable with our students or with our families, they're going to appreciate that. I mean, I know myself, I have a pretty difficult last name. When people say it wrong, I'm like, you know what? I appreciate you trying. And then I say it for them again. And when they say it wrong again, I'm like, oh, you're getting there. Let's try again. And it's the same type of thing. But I'm also that person. I will ask someone as many times as they're willing. I'll say, are you okay with me asking to repeat your name until I get it right? And they can tell me no. They can say, no, just call me by the first letter. I've had that happen. And my response to that, especially with our students who come with a name that is different to American culture and they Americanize their name. I tell them, I said, your name was the only thing you had when you were born into this yeah. world. It's the only thing you had when you were born into this world. And I want to honor whatever name you feel represents you. Because sometimes they want to go by their Americanized name and sometimes they feel like they have to go by their American right. name. Right. Yeah, we're getting at the topic of identity. We actually did an episode with someone on the importance of names and the power of getting people's names right. Uh, and it really had a had a, an impact on me because, you know, as a teacher, you're working with students who have a lot of, you know, the, I don't want to call it difficult because it's not difficult. It's just different, you know, um, but putting the effort in and really understanding what the root is of someone saying, oh, you can just call me this, or I really would like you to call me by my given name, but I know it's just too hard for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an interesting little detour, but I think it it, uh, it has to do with what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Zooming out a little bit, we've talked a lot about the individual, the, the PD that you can do, the self-work that you can do to get yourself in a position um, to be able to recognize and work on implicit biases. Um, we talk also a lot about cultural responsiveness here. Like we've done a lot of stuff on cultural responsive uh, teaching. Um, and so I'm curious how this topic plays into that, particularly from like a curriculum designing standpoint, when you're thinking about how am I going to design my curriculum so I include cultural responsiveness, um, how does implicit bias build build into that? Yeah, so I actually hear two different things with that. I hear about the pedagogy and the how we teach, and then I hear the curriculum and the what we teach. So when we're speaking to pedagogy, it's about instruction, it's about teacher leadership, it's about classroom culture. 
and it's about family and community engagement. There's four pillars that need to happen there. And those four pillars are crucial to how we deliver the instruction and how we relate to our students. When we're speaking specifically to curriculum, we follow two different theories. We want to make sure that curriculum serves as a three-pronged approach. Curriculum should serve as a mirror, so it should represent the children that they're reading about, like themselves, which speaks to the identity piece that you were just speaking to. It serves as a window, which is looking into someone else's world, so learning about other cultures. And then it serves as a sliding glass door. And what we mean by that is the experiential learning, having the opportunity to step into the world of someone else. So curriculum to be truly inclusive needs to have all three of those components. It needs to reflect the student who is being taught. It needs to reflect students outside of the student being taught. And it needs to allow the student being taught the experiences of stepping into another person's role. And then as far as the standards and what you teach and how to infuse that into content, there's four domains. We talk about identity, which you just spoke to, diversity, justice, and action. And I'll dive into those just briefly, but identity is answering the question of who am I? Diversity dives into the question of why are some people different and alike from me? Justice is why are some people treated differently? And action is what am I going to do about it or what can I do about it as a student? And all four of those things need to be integrated into your curriculum and they can all be integrated into different content areas. We do crosswalks with all content areas and those social justice standards. We do crosswalks with all evaluation procedures like Danielson, 5D, and all of those with the critical practices because we have to embed this. It can't be one more thing that teachers are asked to do. Right. Because if we give teachers one more thing, it's really going to crumble. They keep getting one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. We have to stop that. We have to build a strong foundation and bias and relationships and how we're treating one another is the foundation of everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for breaking those down. Uh, th- that makes a lot of sense. You know, the, what resonated most with me with what you just said is that based on the, the what, we, what we'd already talked about in our conversation is a sliding glass door piece. I mean, that is, you know, you get the reflection, you get the window where you're looking at others, but being able to now step in and understand not only someone else's perspective, but also how you operate in someone else's perspective can, must really give you the tools to be able to recognize what you're coming into a situation with. And therefore, see what I'm learning here, hopefully being able to be better equipped to learn how another person might walk into your sliding glass or through your sliding glass door, I should say. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. You hear a lot about windows and mirrors, but the sliding glass door to me is uh, that's, that's, that's an interesting one. All right. So I watched your, uh, your 2018 Ted talk, which I thought was great. And we'll, um, we'll link to it because I think it's well worth uh, watching. Um, and you ended it by saying, and I want to make sure I get it right. So I'm going to read it. Um, in order to unite society, we must, we must first understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. Can you distill that down? in some way to like the school level? Yeah. So that's actually the name of the company, right? Our company is us squared, which stands for understand self unite society. I was a math person back in the day. So I had to put in the little squared. There's just no parentheses. 
Um, but understand self, unite society, because we have to start with ourselves. And when you ask to bring that down to educator level, as educators, we teach oftentimes from our experience of how we were taught. And I'll speak for myself. I was taught a very ethnocentric, Eurocentric viewpoint of a lot of history. So when I first started teaching, I thought I was doing some really great things by having thematic units about Africa and having thematic units about Asia. And I was stereotyping and oversimplifying cultural components. And I thought I was doing really great things because it was something that I was not taught. But I wasn't thinking about it as providing accurate representations of different cultures. I wasn't thinking about it as that mirror and that window and that sliding glass door. I was offering cool activities or projects rather than embedding it into what we do. It was almost like an extra add-on, like fun day Friday, where we learned about someone else instead of embedding it. I think that's similarly to when schools have diversity days or multicultural days. I am so against those because it's saying, all right, for one day we're going to celebrate everyone who's different from society's norm. We should celebrate that all the time, right? So when we bring it down to the educator level, it's about understanding that how we were taught might not necessarily be how we should continue teaching. And there might be aspects of how we were taught that were great. I had wonderful teachers. I'm not taking away from that. However, they were taught the way they were told to teach. And I think in today's day and age, it's more important for us to say, what can I do to advocate for my students? And how can I continue to advocate and make sure that all of my students feel welcomed, heard, and valued in my classroom? Yeah, and that, and that really gets down to you're more of just a teacher of content, you know, uh, when I started teaching quite by accident, I'll add, um, <laughs> Spanish in the middle of the year under very difficult, tragic, almost even circumstances. And I won't get into that now, but I was young. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and my first thought was how did my Spanish teacher do this when I was in high school? Not even thinking if it was effective, which is arguable. Um, but you like, it's just so hard not to go back there. It's, it's just entrenched. And it took me years to realize that doesn't work, you know? And, uh, and I think we still have that problem. Um, you know, I think teacher education, I think we've made strides. Um, I do some work at the Harvard graduate school of education. I think we're getting there, but we're not there in terms of, of what it really means to be an educator today. And, to not sort of rely on all these embedded practices that we've had over the years. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, okay, last couple of questions. So uh, is there a, a book or a resource that you would, um, that's inspired you in some way that you'd recommend to, to listeners? Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that because my very first exposure in this work, like I shared with you, I was raised in an environment that's very different than what has shaped my core beliefs, right? My first exposure into the world of DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion was by a professor in, at Central Michigan University in the early 90s, and it's Healing Racism in America by Nathan Rutstein. And that is a book 
that I still read at least yearly because it really looks at the idea of it not being something that we can put a bandaid on. And it talks more about, it's not just about racism. There's so many other components embedded within it. And I think oftentimes we think racism is the only issue, but racism is one issue among many isms and discriminatory behaviors. And we have ethnocentrism and nationalism, and there's so many different components to how we discriminate in America. And I say just in America because that's the predominant force of who we work with. There's discrimination across the world, um, and I think for different levels. But Nathan Rutstein's Healing Racism in America really talks about what the general, what the foundation needs to be and how we need to do that inner work ourselves and really identifies some of the systemic issues rather than some of those individual or implicit issues because it's so much more than just one or two people that hold these beliefs. It's inherent in our society if you look throughout our history. Great. Well, certainly a relevant book for now. And I always love it when people say that this is a book that I return to yearly. That's always a powerful one. So uh, we will link to that book um, for folks who are interested in reading it. Um, And then last question, how can people uh, learn more about the great work that you are doing? Yeah, so we have a website, us2consulting.com. Um, And also people can just email us at info at us2consulting.com. We're also on social media. We're not ramped up as much as we could be, um, but we definitely post at least a couple times a week on social media. Probably the biggest thing just to be in the loop with things, if they're not necessarily ready to reach out directly to us, is if you sign up for our newsletter, we send out a monthly newsletter and we have a specific ism that we focus on every month. So let me give you an example. Last month for the month of July, we talked about July was ethnocentrism because it was the 4th of July. And we talk about that being Independence Day, but it really wasn't Independence Day for anyone other than white men. So because we had to go through women's suffrage movement. So that included women. We had to go through Juneteenth, which included our black African-American ancestors. So um, we talked about ethnocentrism in July. August, we're talking about lookism, which also encompasses colorism, uh, the brown paper bag test, how even in Asia, skin lightening treatments are the number one industry in the area. Um, So color skin tone is very important across the country um, and across the world, really. Um, And then we talk about different isms. So we talk about ethnocentrism, uh, racism, sexism, cisgenderism, religious imperialism, and we provide resources for that specific ism each month. So that would be a great way just to start getting involved with knowing what we do within our company. Yeah, and keeping yourself educated on things that uh, sometimes we don't think as much about as we should, which I think uh, is a great way to kind of wrap this conversation up. This was, I mean, it really sort of stretched my thinking a lot, Megan. And you know, I started the conversation by saying that, you know, recognizing some implicit bias, perhaps that I had not covered this topic yet. We talked through that. I think you gave us a lot of great examples. Hopefully we were able to really kind of funnel it down um, and make it more specific to educators, which I think we were. Um, And I just uh, really appreciate you coming on and talking about this issue um, with us and sharing with our listeners. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Have a great day, Steve. You too. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. 
where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.